0: Like in the 50s, you know, I was raised on a farm. Well, my dad, he never took time off. I mean, there was no such thing as a day off. But when the the new cars all came out in September on a certain same day and in the small town we lived in, uh, you would take off and go to town and look at those new cars.
1: It's time for Class Racing Today, the podcast for the NHRA Class Racing fan. Welcome back to Class Racing Today, classracingtoday.com, classracingtoday.gmail.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them there. Uh, If you want to help support the show, don't forget, you can send us stars on the Facebook video, or you can donate. If you get value out of the show, you can go to classracingtoday.com and click on the donate button, and you get to choose the amount of value that you got out of the show and turn that into dollars and send it our way so we can continue these conversations. Uh, Bobby is out working again, so Brian what is up what's going on
2: i can't believe bobby trusts us enough to leave him alone <laughs> for like not being in one episode i know
1: like, it's crazy normally it's the inmates, you that's gone
2: inmates are running the asylum but that's all right uh we uh we'll get through it i guess bobby's so. working and i thought i'm gonna kind of cheat though and i'm gonna do it on my own i wanted to bring like a legend who has been around i mean what's this guy has probably over 200 National or two hundred records and just a a true legend to the sport and I just wanted to get him on and pick his brain and see what he could teach a a youngster like myself on the sport.
1: I, I do though before you get going I want to uh, thank Kenwood Welding and Metalizing at uh, Baltimore Maryland for sponsoring the show. Call him four one zero six eight six three seven six zero. Kenwood Welding and Metalizing has been offering quality me- welding services. For all processes and all materials since 1932, we thank them for their support of class racing today. um, Yeah. All right. Take it away.
2: So, yeah, we're going to bring a legend on today, Craig, and you can uh, sit back here and we'll learn about (laughs) how things used to be, the way things used to be and the way where they're going. So I'm pretty excited. Uh, Today we're going to have on Cal Method. How's it going, Cal?
0: Pretty good, Brian.
2: So is it true you have over 200 records?
0: Yeah, I've set over 200 national records, a whole bunch of them back in the 70s because you used to get points for setting the records, and that's why I was able to win the division 8 out of 10 years in the 70s because at one time you got 200 points for the ET record and 200 points for the mile-an-hour record. And, uh, so it, uh, it was pretty important to be able to set the records back then.
2: You know, that was, is that probably the biggest reason why that's not emphasized on is when did that change where they didn't give you points for that?
0: It started gradually going away in the later seventies. Uh, I'm not sure the exact year when that, uh, went away, they changed it off and on. You'd get the, at one time you got, uh, Oh, you would get a hundred points for both ends. Then it went to 200 points for both ends. And I think, I'm not sure. I think it got down to where there was just some events where you might get, uh, extra points, but, uh, uh, I'm not sure exactly what year that went away.
2: What year did you start racing?
0: Uh, kind of every weekend kind of in 1964 uh, I went started in deer park Washington and uh, just had a bunch of friends that was going up there and uh, I had known a little bit about it because I used to we started out street racing a lot back in the in the 60s and uh, then 64 well, I got introduced into because to, back then all there was was class racing you had to you first off you entered a car in your class, then you had to win the class of trophy to go into the eliminator. And there was only like twenty-three stock classes back then. And uh, so and yes, you, know, you were one of the fast guys and stuff, you didn't really get get to race the eliminator, which when I started I didn't know a whole lot about that. But uh, I started getting real serious. I went to the 66 Winter Nationals, and that's when I really got kind of my eyes open to the big picture of drag racing and got really hooked on it. And and then the summer of 66 is when I got my first real competitive car and uh, then was able to set the record in 1967 with it.
2: So early then they kind of incentivized you to work hard and find combinations that were fast, basically by having to only the fast cars are going to make it in.
0: Yeah, back then, see you had, uh, there was no adding or subtracting weight or anything like that. You had to pick the body style and engine combination that would fit towards the top of a weight break. And they went strictly by shipping weights and horsepower, advertised horsepower. And uh, so you might have like a two door sedan and run one class, and a, a four door hardtop might run another, and a station wagon another. And he, it was very important to, to pick the car for the class. Like in the 70s, there, I would, uh, in order to set all those records, a lot of times in between points meets, I would change bodies. And uh, so I could set the record the next weekend. And uh, so it was, uh, but back then it was a whole lot easier because drivetrains and technology wasn't nothing like it is today. (laughs) You had uh, hard work and, and kind of being a little bit innovative and stuff back then, you know, you could do it because you couldn't find out there was no information level out there very much uh, like there is in the later years.
2: Was it easier to set a record then?
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, but then too, if you were a record holder back in the sixties and, and early seventies, I mean, especially in the sixties, you were just, I mean, you were somebody <laughs> cause there was only 23 national records out there to be had. And, uh what really kind of like 64 65 and early 66, I spent kind of paying my dues and learning and ta- trying to find out how they made these stock eliminator cars go fast. And nobody would tell you anything at all. I mean, they'd just your best friend and lie to you, right? Looking you right in the face. And uh, then uh, in 1966 in about a, july or august uh i was there i i had noticed before that that out of 23 records there was eight of them eight national record holders in yakima washington which is only 85 miles away from us and uh i kind of was curious about that but then in 66 in the summer wide sanderson brothers had a nine passenger fuel injected 283 283 horsepower station wagon that they had set the F stock record with. And uh, it came up for sale. And uh, I wound up buying it. And Jim Sanderson, he sat me on the couch and we talked for two hours. And he told me everything that was going on. Plus the guy in Yakima that was doing the motors was Gene's automotive there. And he was kind of a lot of the force behind the record holders. Plus Jim and Dave Sanderson's dad went went to uh, high school with the Crower brothers, and uh, so they had the cheater cams before people even knew what they were. <laughs> so that's really what took me light years, it made me competitive. Basically, I had won a little bit before that, but not like I did after I got that car. Why that was really, uh, it really gave me a, to you know be competitive.
2: Yeah. It's just crazy when we think, you know, technology makes it easier and it makes it harder all at the same time. I
0: mean, yes, that's- yes, that's, that's exactly right. <laughs> it, uh, it's, it's kind of disheartening to me because, you know, I mean, uh, it got to where, oh back all through the seventies, pretty much, you know, you could, you could work and not spend a whole lot of money and, and still you could, be competitive with anybody out there. And then it it just kind of evolved, you know, as it has. And uh, like today, it's kind of, it's like a shame. Now today they took national records don't really mean anything anymore. I mean, you know, they're all they mean is you got to turn your motor apart, (laughs) waste $200 worth of gaskets. And and, uh, so it's kind of sad the way that that's went, but with there again, the technology. I mean, uh, if you got enough money and and a cell phone, you can be a record holder tomorrow.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's kind of weird. Like we talk about that all the time, like with the automatic horsepower and trying to get people to run the cars out for that to work. You know, that you have to incentivize people to go fast, and you know, unless you're in a heads up, is there much of a reason to do it anymore?
0: Oh, there isn't because you get penalized for it. You know, that's, that's what's, uh, and it's kind of sad because back in, you know, in the, I'd say up until sometime in the eighties, if you had a heads up run, you know, you just, uh, you maybe cooled your car a little bit more or something like that, but you didn't know about all the things we do today, it didn't cost you 200 $300 to hop your car up to go fast. And that's kind of what sad nowadays is that, uh, you know, it, it there's just, so, again, technology's made it where there's so many things out there that where, you know, you can, you can't run your car, you know, that fast every single run and expect to be do good in the eliminator. Uh, so it, uh, you know, I'm not sure. I don't, the NHRA has never re- really, spent the time to, you know, delve into what we deal with. I mean, uh, you know, we've got to run the car basically in the Eliminator, you run it pretty much like a bracket car. And then when you get a heads up, you might pick up any, you know, I, there, you can pick up anywhere from two tenths to four tenths of a second and that's where I don't really, the automatic horsepower factoring system. I, I just, it, you know, it's, it's, I understand their intent, but it's not the way to do it. It just, uh, it, it just, they don't factor in all the things, you know, that they should, the only way you could do it is to hire somebody that would be a full-time kind of analysts of the times and stuff and no weather no cars and kind of know the eliminator is they're dealing with but that'll never happen
2: yeah it seems like the the fundamental issue is just you know what the average is it seems like if they would just take like say you took the top five fastest runs in any combination twice a year like take that into your average otherwise there's still too many games to play and you know what I think? Also, let's incentivize people. Let's make national records. You know, let's give away points. Maybe that's, maybe that's the cheapest way to get people to go after it. Maybe it's not a money thing. Maybe you add points for setting a record.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know anymore. I, I'm not sure how you would do that. In the way of fact that, uh, uh, you know, there's so many things that come into play, like like the weather and like altitude corrections and all kinds of stuff that I've seen over the years. And I really don't know what would be the answer to make it kind of equal. You just can't, uh, you can't equalize everything because there's always guys that are sharper or can nowadays can spend more money and, and hire the better people. Uh, I remember back, I think it was probably, it was even the 69 or 70 Dave Wren was on the Chrysler, uh, deal then, and, and he was running cars and I was talking to him one time. And I remember him saying that, you know, they, they tried to equalize things back then farmer would kind of look at the times and he would lay his qualification or a classification book on your fender the next week. And he might lay it on your fender and say, well, you know, your car's 10 horsepower more this week. And uh, cause you know, these cars went that fast over the first of the year here, and we kept track and that's the way it was. I remember Dave Wren said that, you know, the only way they could ever equalize it was to stamp an ET on Ronnie Sox's forehead or Dave Wren's forehead or whatever, you know, kind of like the kind of like comps doing with that individual, you know, deal, but I, I can't see that as an answer either, but I thought, you know, I have always looked back on that thinking that was funny that he would say that because it but it was true. I mean, you're always going to have certain people that are going to excel because they work harder or longer or have more resources.
2: I can only imagine what it was like to race back then. Cause I mean, you're basically in the, the big threes, horsepower wars, right? Like everybody was actively involved and they wanted yeah. to be number one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was really neat to see, you know, the factories trying to, uh, outdo each other and they kind of, they kind of would do it in a way it was pretty secretive. I mean, they, they couldn't find out like Chrysler couldn't find out what Ford was doing and GM, GM really never stepped forward and done the stuff like Chrysler did, uh, Chrysler was really kind of the, the force where they were the first one to use engineers and parts and stuff like that and they took racers in their fold that uh you know that some of the top racers and uh and they had stuff that the average guy just couldn't even imagine out there it uh you know well it's
2: probably it was probably equivalent of somebody bringing a pro stock team in to help develop their car today you know
0: pretty pretty close same type of scenario you know like it's in uh I think it was in '68, I believe, at the Winter Nationals. That's when Ford brought the Cobra Jet out, and it was rated at uh, 335 horse. And uh, they were strictly going after Chrysler, and uh, that uh, that was quite a uh, quite a quite a deal there. They saturated the field. They had about uh, I can't remember if they had six or eight of them there or something in different all the different classes they could fit and uh uh, i remember they uh i think dave wren beat like four or five of them in the eliminator and made it to the final and he finally lost to one of them in the final (laughs) and uh, but that was you know the factories really went after each other back then
2: yeah that would have been a whole different time you know with the the hemis and all the horsepower stuff like i can only imagine in the in the class side of things how much fun that made it all oh were, yeah it was were you always a gm guy or were you ever a chrysler guy or
0: uh i was i always the way i got in i was a ford guy to begin with back when i first started driving and stuff my first car was a 52 ford victoria hardtop and uh I liked the the forge back then, but then when i I moved from Sandpoint, Idaho, down here to Pasco, and uh, and I uh, uh, I was actually I was working at a service station in 1961, and I wanted to buy a new car. I got a wild hair to to buy a new car, and I want so I thought, okay, I'll buy a Corvair. And there was a Chevrolet dealership a couple blocks over from the gas station I worked at. And I went over there and sat down with one of the salesmen and and told him what I was going to do. And he asked me, "Okay, what's your financial situation?" <laughs> I told him, and he says, "I ah, says you don't want to buy a new car. <laughs> he says you'll you know, you'll be in debt to your eyebrows." And he had a '57 Chevy four-door station wagon uh, with a Power Pack 283 in it. And, uh, long story short, he wound up selling me that. And, uh, then I got, uh, got into the kind of, I was a street racing then cause cruising and street racing was kind of what you did back then. And, uh, we got into that and, uh, and I wound up tearing the power glide out of it and then changing it over to a three speed. And Then I, uh, uh, wound up blowing the motor up, and then I had a uh, roommate at that time that was uh, working for a, a motor supply place in Pasco, and they had, of course, they had some guys there that were kind of into hot rodding a little bit. They redid the motor, and and you could buy a Duntoff cam and a set of solid lifters for sixteen dollars back then, <laughs> and it like if you went with Ford or Chrysler, it'd cost you like forty or fifty dollars for the same thing. So I got into gm because they were cheaper (laughs) and i kind of realized that so i kind of been with g you know shivvies ever since and and, uh, of course then when i bought the 57 record holder wagon then i was really hooked on it and that i've just stayed with gm over all the years those
2: wagons were kind of all the rage then when you started
0: yeah. Yeah. They were, uh, you know, back on the seven inch tire rule, the wagons and you know, the, the tracks and the tire regulation back then I had a pretty good advantage by having a station wagon at some, you know, through some of the years and, uh, and of course that's what I could afford.
2: One thing, uh, I listened to one, a podcast, you did it here a couple of years ago, and one thing that really jumped out to me is doing all that on a tow bar, yeah. like,
0: yeah. Yeah. We graduated from, uh, when I first started going to Deer Park, I drive my, I had a 61 Chevy with a 283 in it, two barrel and I had 513 gears in it and I'd drive it to Deer Park, which is about 220 miles. And I would just put the tack on 4,000 and we'd go about 55 miles an hour. And boy, then when we got our first tow bar, you know, boy, it was big time. And, then you had tow bar and then you got, uh, you'd have to undo the drive shaft. Well, then we graduated to what they call towing hubs. You could bolt them onto your rear axles and they would free wheel. It was like having a front hub on the back back. We did that for, for a, quite a while. Then when we got the first trailer, you know, then boy, you were really big time then and, uh, and, uh, that was probably in, uh, 66 is probably when i got my first trailer but uh yeah it just evolved you know over that and uh, it was uh you know really really crazy the way that it has evolved
2: (laughs) you could argue that trailers uh was the final straw to break the camel's back on racing right like you just took all the fun out of it when you're not using the tow bar
0: <laughs> well, it was it was a lot more work when you got to the track when you had to, <laughs> had to change the tow bars and and the uh, the rear hubs and everything. It was, uh, but it was you know back then you just done what you had to do and uh, it, it was it was a lot of it was a lot of fun because there was a lot more I think there was a lot more camaraderie and stuff. Uh, going on back then, you know, it just wasn't such a big deal as it is today. I mean, it was, it was just fun.
2: <laughs> well, just, just think of like driving down the interstate today and having a car come by on the tow bar, you know, the open trailer, at least you see what there is, but I mean, there's no secrets when you're on the tow bar, what you were showing up with.
0: Right. right, Yeah. Yeah. That's uh yeah, yeah. Back then my it was, uh, yeah, it was
2: cool. Well, what- What was the farthest you ever hauled one on a tow bar?
0: Uh, probably, uh, probably maybe three, four hundred miles. Uh, I was trying to think in 60, yeah, we, uh, I guess we went to the well, first time I went to the Winter Nationals in '67, uh, and I think, I think I had a trailer then, but I wouldn't swear to it. I, I remember we went through Oregon, and it was through a blizzard, and the whole front end of the '57 Chevy wagon, from the headlights down, got sandblasted, and there was gravel, red gravel, about a foot deep in front of the radiator and i'm not sure we probably might have been on tow hubs then because that's why it got so bad but uh but yeah when you you know when you got your first trailer back in the in those days away well, it was quite a deal
2: you packed lighter when you had to fit everything in your pickup or your car then
0: yeah Yeah, I graduated over the years there to where I started hauling about everything. I was kind of known for always having spare parts and everything you could possibly think, but, uh, that came in the seventies more, more or less.
2: Well, one of the impressive records is that you've actually raced with your wife for a long time.
0: Yeah, she started racing, uh, in 1976 and, uh. Uh, we, we, we had always raced, uh, like two cars in the say, I think we started in 71 or so I had always, uh, cause the cars were cheap for me to put together. And, uh, like, uh, uh you know, they, so I could put two cars together. Cause I did my own motors then and stuff. And, uh, and it was, it was a lot you know we didn't have a lot of money but it was pretty easy to put a couple cars because because was, there wasn't as many specialized parts as there is now and uh, anyhow i had other guys friends of mine that would drive another car and then uh, one guy he would mainly do it but i didn't seem i think the the fall of 65 or uh, 75 he, uh, just didn't show up all winter. <laughs> and so, I, uh, well, he doesn't want to go to the winter nationals and we got two cars, so we're going. And, uh, so I, I told her, you know, you're going to drive. We'll go to, we always went to Irwindale raceway the week before Pomona and they'd rent the track to you for like 25 bucks for from seven o'clock in the morning till nine o'clock at night. And, uh, we went there and, uh, and I taught her how to drive, and by the end of the day, she was running under the record. And, uh, and uh, so we went to Winter Nationals, and, and we wound up getting to the quarterfinals. And uh, and uh, I uh, uh, be, I be I we would have ran in the semis, and she red lighted in the quarters. And then in the semis, I lost to John Dusenberry, but if she had red lighted or she'd have won that round, we'd have met in the quarterfinals or actually a semis and one of us would have been in the final. And, but, uh, but yeah, that was, uh, that was really, it was a lot more fun when she started driving because it was more of a, a team and. She had wanted to drive before that, but I never knew it. I was so involved and intense in doing my thing that we never talked about it. And and, uh, she told me later that she was, you know, she wanted to drive, but we just never, never discussed it.
2: Well, we'll just say that fate is the reason she red-lit because meeting in the semifinals, I don't know, that might have been a long drive home. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, at that time, it uh, it might have been, but uh, uh, we've always, uh, always taken kind of the team concept to it. Uh, it wouldn't have come into play in that instance, but like later that year, when we went to Boise at the points meet, uh, I set both ends of the record with my car, and I didn't want to tear both cars down, so I didn't didn't have her set the record. And we wound up meeting in the final and uh she she red lighted for me because <laughs> I had more points and we've always kind of operated that way. <laughs> Whoever was doing the best in points and or whatever situation, points, money or whatever, boy, uh, that that's just the way you do whatever's best for the team.
2: She never held that above you, did she? Like you remember when I red lit for you that time?
0: <laughs> well, I, I paid her back there year, years later when we were uh, in the in the hunt for the championship that one year. We were both in the top ten, and uh, and in Seattle, she was several points ahead of me. And uh, so I just told her, I said, I'm leaving on the first amber. <laughs> and, uh, so uh, it all, we kind of paid each other back.
2: <laughs> that was probably a little... You know, when you're both racing though, I mean, I'm sure it was crazy and hectic, but yet how cool is that that you guys are both going on the track and finding a passion in the same thing?
0: Oh, it was, yeah, it was really good. I mean, it, uh, it helped in multiple ways, you know, cause you're like, she was, in, she was involved in everything pretty much, uh, you know, it helps having your wife involved in it with the finances and stuff. Cause money was pretty tight there for a lot of years. I mean, she had to scratch pretty hard to uh, keep up with my spending on the car. And uh, so it was, uh, you know, it helped out a lot. Plus she, uh, she, she done a lot of things that a lot of women probably wouldn't do. Uh, uh, she uh, in 1981, why, I had got kicked out in Denver after I, lo- I won that event. And it kind of devastated me to the point where I was really having a hard time struggling with it. And uh, she was doing good. And they combined that year, Division 6 and 7 were one division. And uh, she wound up doing really good in the points that year. And. She- I, she went to Bakersfield, California to the last meet with Pat Rouse, a friend of hers, Gary Rouse's wife, and they went down by themselves and, uh, she wound up getting to the final and she won the division that year by her kind of by herself and, uh, then there was, uh, the time that, uh in 83 i won the world's finals and then over that winter i bought joe moore's a stock automatic camaro and uh, right in the middle of the winter in blizzard conditions i sent her back there with a ramp truck to get the car and it turned out to be one of the worst winners we'd ever had
2: i gotta know how that turned out you better elaborate on that one
0: <laughs> well she uh, she left here and she went uh she went back there and uh, it was it was kind of a unusual experience for me because we're always you know you uh, you always welcome racers into your house and stuff and she got there and, i don't know for whatever reason why joe he just met her outside and, and they had a hell of a time getting the car started because it was like zero out and he got it on the ramp truck for her and just by you know send her on her way and uh, i called herm chapman and uh she went to herm chapman and his wife's place and they uh they kept her there for a couple of days and got her uh got her kind of stabilized and then she took off and she got to evanston wyoming which is the top of a very big hill when you go down into utah and uh she called me and she was in a motel and she says i I, I can't do this. <laughs> and uh, so I kind of remembered that I had a cousin that was in the Air Force down in Utah, down around Salt Lake. And I made a bunch of calls because I hadn't talked, seen him in years. And I finally got a hold of him. And uh, he went up and took the, took the truck down the hill for her. And then got her kind of mentally right again and she took off and uh, and got home and uh, she got home uh i believe christmas eve day <laughs> it was uh there are not too many women that would do that by themselves
2: no and then you think like pre-cell phone you know like you didn't look at the phone yeah. and say oh this is the weather five days out
0: yeah yeah this uh, it was it was pretty uh you at the time, you know, I didn't think too much about it. Cause I mean, I, uh, drag racing was all I thought about period. <laughs> and it just, uh, uh, nowadays I'd be worried to death about her, but <laughs> it was kind of a, a different deal back then.
2: Well, then not to mention, like, I just, like I was around home phones, we had one, but now like my kid has a cell phone I call and he won't answer, you know, like just Yeah. You don't have that instant communication, you just feel lost. I couldn't imagine about driving across the country.
0: Oh yeah. I yeah, I think back on it, you know, and it's just uh it's unbelievable. Uh just like uh, you know, back then when we was traveling across, like when you go to India and stuff, why hell we'd drive, you know, we'd leave we wouldn't shut the truck off hardly until we got there. We'd switch off drivers and, and just keep going and, uh, didn't, didn't operate on much sleep back then, but, uh, that was just what you had to do.
2: <laughs> what was Indy like back then?
0: Oh, I, the first time I went to Indy was in 69 and I had, uh, uh uh, 283 two, 283 fuel engine, I'd put the fuel injected motor in a sedan delivery. So I could because that was kind of the craze. And like in 68 69, the sedan deliveries were all over the place, there were just hundreds of them. And that's because you could use the four speed hydromatic behind any engine in any body, in, or in the sedan deliveries, you could use a four speed hydro and, and it was kind of good and bad because the four speed hydros got their popularity let's say from the stonewoods and cooks gassers and stuff well they didn't have a good one to put behind a a small block chevy because when you made the two three shift it done four functions It, it applied the clutch and released the band and applied the band and released a clutch and to get those four things to happen at the same time, the only way you could get it that we knew of was to lower line pressure to where the two, three shift would kind of be, it wouldn't kill the motor when you shifted, And consequently, you'd burn up the transmission fairly quick. And that's what happened to me in 69 at the winter nationals. I made it to the final. And uh, then when I made the two, three shift. It's it slipped really bad. And uh, later on, uh, a guy, Jim Mannell, that races a Pacer Stalker out of uh, British Columbia, he was doing a competitor of mine, Bob Nottingham's transmissions. And uh, Bob kind of felt sorry for me and got me hooked up with Jim. And he done just all kinds of things in that transmission to where he got the two, three shift to work just like the others. And, uh, when I went to Indy in 69, uh, there was a whole bunch of people after I made the first run, come over and wanted to know who done the transmission. And, uh, cause they're at Indian 69, there was probably, I, I'm not sure, but I would say there was between 50 and maybe 75 or maybe even more sedan deliveries there. I mean, they were everywhere and, uh. Like my city mine was like a show car race car at that time. with uh, Neil Kenworthy, a friend of mine in Pasco, he was taking auto body when we did it. And he took and he done most of the work on it. And John Diana and the guys out of California had these kind of faded paint jobs that went top to bottom, they'd light, medium, and dark colors. And we had it painted like that and it had gold metal flake stripes on it. And like I say, it was kind of a show car and I lost class there. And, uh, Oh, when the race was over, there was a gal from South, I think it was South Carolina and she come by and she had a 16 year old kid and she laid her checkbook on the fender and said, you know, my boy wants your car. And. Uh, you know, back then I fell in love with the car when we was building it. I, and I just said, you know, I, I can't sell it. And that was in incept labor day, January 1st, the car wasn't worth a penny. Cause NHRA outlawed those cars. <laughs> so ever since then, I said, if anybody wants to buy one, they're going to be an owner because <laughs> that was a bad, bad decision on my part. <laughs>
2: That was the first time they tried to get the car count down, right? They just got rid of the whole class.
0: Yeah, boy, they got yeah. You had to run a factory engine body combination. Uh, is what they went before that. You could run. I mean, we would run. You know, any engine and any body. It uh, was pretty much the 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 deal back then, and. Uh, but like another thing, interesting thing, you know, getting back to the automatic horsepower factoring and kind of cars being underrated and overrated and stuff. Well, in like in 69, 68, 69, a 57 Chevy two-door sedan with a uh, 270 horse 283 in it, two four barrel 283, they ran, I don't remember which class it was, might have been H stock. I think it was H stock. And they dominated, you know, because back then the 57 Chevys pretty much owned a lot of the classes. Well, these guys from um, Georgia, uh, I don't remember their names, but their car was called the revenue or two. And they owned a big mechanical company down there. Well, they had got Jim Wable to may, do a motor form just for Indy. And the other cars in the class 57 Chevys, they were going like, 1280s 1290s and these guys were going like 1260 and i mean they were just you know it was just a fantastic car well bud rowe was there with a 69 nova with a 250 horse 255 horse 350 in it which none of us knew knew much about because it was a new car and we didn't have the money so we didn't pay any attention well he was going 1240s (laughs) <laughs> yeah, needless to say that's that's when you kind of seen well you know the underrated cars these new cars some of them are pretty underrated and uh and uh so it was uh you know this kind of stuff with underrated cars and all this it's been going on a long long time
2: <laughs> yeah it's not nothing that's going to get fixed immediately it's just
0: no 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 it's uh it's, I, I don't know if they've got a fix for it.
2: <laughs> well, it's uh it always makes for a good conversation at least.
0: Yeah. Yeah. These new, you know, the new Copos and, and, uh, challengers and, and the Mustangs, you know, uh, I've seen the factories come in like this before, you know, and, uh, and I can tell you what's going to happen here. You know, if they're, they're going to be in this thing and it's going to be a big deal, but in two years, like you know, uh, Chrysler announced, you know, in two years, the challenger and the, um, um, the other one, they're, they're going to be all electric, <laughs> they're not going to make, so you, they're going to, you know, that factory stock deal, that's going to go away kind of. And, uh, that's kind of, it's really sad because you know, the, the, the technology that they've developed is amazing to me and I know nothing about it, but I know it—it it is incredible what those cars are doing.
2: So what are your thoughts about a factory stock electric class?
0: Uh, yeah, I, I've got no zero interest in electric <laughs> zero. <laughs> I first place, I want to know when they do get, uh, you know, if 30, I heard uh, the guy uh, from that owns Tesla, I heard him about three four months ago, he come on, he said, if 30% of the people in the United States get an electric car and plug them in, the grid goes down. So, you know, I don't, I don't think this country's heading in a good direction, <laughs> but, uh, they seem hell bent on, uh, you know, getting, getting away, but they, this deal that they're so against fossil fuel, I, I think, you know, I don't think they're going to, it's going to be light years in advance before they can get away from fossil fuel.
2: Well, today in South Dakota it looks like it's uh nine below my computers tell me and the wind's blowing 40 mile an hour so I don't know how long a battery's going to keep you warm Exactly. If you're sitting out there
0: yeah that's uh yeah well now you know the the cars can only go what uh, I think maximum range is 300 miles I mean you know that's uh I I just don't I, I don't see them working out, but, uh, but they do have a lot of Tesla's in California and who's was down there at the world's finals, why they had a charging station out there at Pomona and, uh, there's, there was a lot of Tesla's out there.
2: Well, I do find the technology interesting. Like it's neat to me how they can, you know, how fast they can make those cars. And I'm not going to rule out the electric thing. Like, yeah, it's kind of neat. And I can appreciate the technology and what they're doing, but you know, it's never going to replace gas in the tank.
0: No. No, that's, uh, that's it. I mean, yeah, yeah. I don't know. You know, it's hard to know where anything's headed because just like, you know, probably be- before your time time, but like in the fifties, you know, I was raised on a farm Well, my dad, he never took time off. I mean, there was no such thing as a day off, but when the, the new cars all came out in September on a certain, same day and in the small town we lived in, uh, you would take off and go to town and look at those new cars and you know, the car culture and just everything about it was so special at that time, the car was special to everybody pretty much. And like nowadays, God, a lot of kids don't even want to get the driver's license till they're in their twenties, which is amazing.
2: Nowadays, nowadays they don't like cars because that leads to global warming.
0: Yeah, yeah, right.
2: <laughs> what has been your, what was your favorite car?
0: Uh, it's hard to say, but I'd have probably have to say my, that 57 Chevy, the first one that I had that I set the record with would probably be, uh, my favorite and after that would be probably, uh, probably the, the our cars, the 66 Chevys, uh, uh, just because they, they were so easy to work on and so cheap to run.
2: <laughs> so when you weren't racing, what were you doing? Like in the time growing up, did, when did you have kids or?
0: Uh, yeah. When Marianne and I got together in 1970, why, uh, Todd was, uh, two years old and Kathy was not quite one. And, uh, then, uh they uh she kind of raised them cuz i was in the garage or at the, on the at the job i uh i was obsessed with drag racing i mean that's all i did <laughs> and uh, so it was uh, a deal but the, <clears throat> the kids uh somehow they got raised and uh todd he uh he was kind of a rebel back then when he got to being in his uh, younger years, why uh, me and him didn't see eye to eye. And I, uh, uh, he went to live with his, his biological dad. And, uh, then later on, I <clears> think <throat> it was about, no, oh, might've been 1999 or 2000. Why we kind of reconnected and built his 70 Camaro that we, that we run now. And, uh, he built it as a kind of a street car to begin with. And then it went to kind of a semi show car. And then he got kind of where he could got enough money where he could start racing, uh, at the local track and stuff. And, uh, that's kind of evolved into where we're at today. Both the girl and uh, Kathy and Todd, both race cars now.
2: Well, they probably got a lot of miles on them hanging out. Do they go to the races with you when they were young? Every weekend.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 They, uh, yeah, they, it, we had little trouble there because you could only take them out of school so many days for the year and, uh, there were some winter nationals where they couldn't go, but most of them, they did go. And, uh, but back, uh, it wasn't so bad back. Cause like in 1970, let's say, you know, they only had Pomona and there was only four national events and so it wasn't like today where uh, there's a national event every every two weeks or month or whatever it uh, it was just the, you know in the national events back then i mean it was they were so special that it was just uh, a whole different different atmosphere and, and and when you won one it was uh, it was a major major deal i mean like nowadays it's a big deal but it ain't like it was then
2: i'm guessing just in like payouts and contingency and all that stuff i mean like you could win one of those and really do something
0: oh yeah yeah it uh the money was pretty good actually in the 70s not i mean compared to the car cost and traveling and then in the 80s it got started getting actually a little better in the eighties where there was more money. And then in the nineties, really, I'd say from about 85 up, if you won, I figured if you won three national events a year, you could actually make money. Uh, if you were running, uh, a medium priced stock eliminator car. And, uh, then, uh, uh, through the nineties there, when Marianne won Brainerd there twice, uh, if we'd have had all the stickers, we could have won $20,000 and for, you know, the national event then, and, and, uh, that would, you know, that was kind of where I thought the thing would go, keep going. Cause it had been going that way for a lot of years, but then in, uh, I don't remember I think it was, she won the 20, 2001 World finals. And I think we were down to where we might've, I'm not sure. I think we might've got maybe 11,000 then because it was starting to taper off then, and then it really got bad in the, you know, in the 2005 and up because the manufacturers all left and that's where you made your money. It was on the stickers. And like nowadays, I mean, it, it's like I tell I tell people now, if you're not an addict, you wouldn't be racing HRA because the cost versus what you can win is just crazy.
2: Well, and that's kind of what pulled me in, you know, is not having any experience really racing and building a car like the, the mentor that brought me in said, well, if you make it a legal stocker and you can race these MCR races, you know, just our local association, there's... What, yeah. 10 weekends we can they're all doubles with good payouts and it pays down a long ways, like that really makes a difference.
0: Yep, yep. Well, you guys, yeah, you're very, very fortunate to you know, that's one of the best deals in the country there. Uh you know, that you're you're fortunate though, you've got a lot of cars. You know, they've tried out here, they've tried doing that. And like I tell them, you got so many things against you out here, we don't have enough cars in the first place, and then we got to travel, you know, five to 12 hours to go to a track to where We can have these things and, the, and it's just cost prohibitive. And if you don't have a lot of cars, you can't pay the, you know, you, the purse that you should pay to get cars. I was, uh, I was hoping that, uh, the deal like Bo and Jason and Dave did there. And like Tyler Bohannon, I was hoping those things would take off. I, I was really disappointed. With the car turnout at those races last year uh, i I really thought when we went to South Georgia you'd see at least two hundred and fifty to four hundred cars and I was really shocked when you didn't uh, I, I you know I, I just don't understand people not supporting I mean I went basically just to support them because i I was hoping that that's the way things were headed but uh, it just doesn't seem like it uh, it's going to go i that MMCA thing that they got going you know back there the national muscle car you know the way they're headed this year and the way the last few couple of years i think maybe I, I think you'll see a lot of class racers switch over to that maybe you know uh because they don't you know, a lot of the guys are older. And like me, if I go three weekends in a row, I I'm burned out. I, I want two or three weeks off. And, uh, when I was young, hell, I'd go every weekend, but you know, nowadays it's kind of cost prohibited and everything. And, and, uh, something like what they've got, I believe they have like six races, I think this year, you know, and if they start like that and kind of grow it every year, they, they could really, uh, they could really get, get things where it'd be fun again. And, and at least, at least some halfway decent money.
2: Yeah. I'm always, I'm always interested in like with uh Bo's race and Bohannon's race, you know, you're, you've set national records. You've, I would call you an NHRA purist, but yet you're still willing to go to things like that. And I always wonder like, how do we lose those people? Like, I mean, the national records are cool, but they don't mean anything. Now you don't get rewarded for doing them
0: right and they've diluted the wally you know they've they've actually got people still thinking that the wally is that special but it's not i mean not like it was i mean it you know back in the 80s or whatever if you want a wally why you know yeah that was you were you were something and that was really special but and now they've got them, I mean, your, your local bracket race gives them out, you know, <laughs> during the, during the year and stuff. So I I can't see uh, there's so many people still hooked on that, that I really don't understand that. I mean, uh, I, I, you know, I, I mean, I don't really say, I wouldn't say I really would want it to <clears throat> where we go for the money. Cause that isn't really the rate you can't. Really go for that, but although those races that Bo and Tyler put on, if you win one of those, you know you you comparative to your car cost and getting there and stuff, you know that that's good. But it, uh, it like NHRA, I mean, it's terrible. I mean, like a national event, three hundred and fifty dollars to get in, and you're just really fortunate if you can win five thousand dollars. And and you you know you've got anywhere from a 25000 to a $200,000 car. <laughs> not to mention your, your, your tow rig and, and getting there and back your fuel and everything else. It's uh, like I say, if you're not an addict, you wouldn't be doing this.
2: <laughs> I think maybe you just gave me uh, some cautionary advice. Don't win a Wally because there's something magical and you just want to win a whole bunch more, even though they mean nothing.
0: Yeah. they, they Kind of. Yeah. They, they, they it took me a long long time but they bore off on me now now i call them dust collectors but (laughs) but i understand somebody that doesn't have one that you know they are special to them they want one uh really bad and and i understand that because i've been through it but it uh but it is kind of sad, uh, just like back in the, in the seventies when you had four national events and you won one of them. I mean, basically back in the sixties and seventies, if you were a national record holder, you were a god. And if you won a national event, I mean, you were really up there. Whereas, whereas nowadays, you know, it's just not the same level uh, as it was back then.
2: You think there's too many races, though? Does that dilute it down?
0: Yeah. I think that's part of what's done it. Uh, you know, they're looking at it strictly as a, um, uh, you know, strictly as NHRA, the people they have there now, especially they're looking at it just strictly as a money-making circuit, not really, uh, um, uh, it's not that special because, uh, you know, if they had, uh, if you had only say maybe 12 races, They would be a bigger deal, but then you'd have to let, to make it really special, you'd have to narrow the classes down to where you get more cars in, like it, like at Indy there in 69, I mean, there, I don't know how many cars was there total in stock, but there had to be 600 plus, maybe, maybe even 900. I know at one time at Indy, there was over 900 stockers one year i went i don't remember what year that was it was somewhere in them early years but uh like you know what what's really kind of killed things too is that you know like when i started there were three eliminators well now there's 13 and so you know that's why we got these quotas and all this stuff and you know and uh like the bracket raising, I think Evo came in in the seventies and that kind of evolved into super gas and then super comp and all these. And I kind of, from NHRA's perspective, that's fantastic because like, you know, it's like I tell people, you know, the, you have no leverage against NHRA because if, if you don't like it, get out of line. The guy behind you has got the money out. You know, they, they've got way too many people that want to race. And so they can do anything they want to do basically, and they'll still get a full house.
2: You, how do you think we draw those people to stock super stock though? Like how do we get more people on our side?
0: Oh, it's really tough because you look at the first place, look at the financial cost of it, you know, uh, you almost have to be, almost above average i mean you've you've got to have a lot of money to get into a class car and keep it up because the parts technology has just made it i mean whoever thought a transmission cost five to ten thousand (laughs) dollars you know i mean that's just crazy you know you know and if you if you want a really competitive motor 20 got twenty thousand and up and i mean like back in the in the seventies there, my whole car was $2,300. I mean, and, uh, so it's, I don't know how, you know, I don't see how the young kids could get in and yes, they know like, like us. I mean, I've got the kids kind of in it, but we give them a car and they drive it and they, they don't fully understand the class deal because they like, Bracket racing a lot because it's closer to home and all this, but I mean they they do realize that it's more excitement and there's more uh I guess it's bigger and better when you win you know on a still bigger than a bracket race uh on as far as the stage you're on, but uh they also look at it like you know the money. <laughs> Isn't there like it was, so that doesn't draw them in. And the only thing I can see this, you know, like you guys have the Midwest Class Racer deal and the Heartland deal there, I, that'll get more guys in than anything, uh, right there because it's fun and you got two weekend, you know, you get two races in one weekend and stuff. It's just got so much more going for it, like an NHRA deal, like a points race. A lot of them we go and we're there for. Four to five days for one race, and you make a couple of runs, and you're sitting around the whole rest of the day, and that's what turns off a lot of bracket racers because they like to go, you know, they, a couple of runs, then they run a race, and out here they'll run a race Saturday and a race Sunday, so they get to race twice on a weekend too, and uh, so it's kind of uh, it's hard, but but like with the class racer out here, we don't have any choice, but to run the points meets and the national events. That's all we have. Cause I know Johnny and I talk about that a lot. And it's like, I tell him, I says, well, we either don't race or we race NHRA, the points meets and the national events. Cause that's just, that's what we have out here. But, uh, back there, you know, it, uh, I would really like to see that grow. I mean, that, uh, <clears throat> that because that, I know I talked to Johnny back when this was kind of first getting started and stuff. And I, you know, I thought that the potential was there to get even bigger. I mean, where you could get $10,000 purses and stuff, but you got to have a track operator that's on board with you too. You know, you, you can't run the whole bracket program and everything. If you're going to make stock and super stock, the category for the weekend uh because if you're going to try to get three or four hundred stock and super stock cars there you know you just don't have the time to run all that other stuff too and i think you need kind of coordination there and getting somebody on board that would help grow the whole thing uh but uh that's why i was hoping like Tyler and Bo's deal, the, you know, though, I was hoping those deals would, would just continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger because I could, I could see if they, if they started as kind of like class Midwest class race an organization, and if they had somebody like a retired guy that could put the time in and I could see, I wouldn't think it would be that hard to get the purses up, if you had a guy working on it full time with sponsors and figure out the racers that would come to it and stuff. uh, You know, it might get big enough to where you could have some around the country. And people would be willing to travel to, you know, a distance. Cause if you had the purse up there, 10 to $20,000, I mean, I can't imagine that guys wouldn't be willing to travel a little bit to do that, but they, they wouldn't, if you compete against NHRA, if they're going to go to NHRA races and then they, you know, they just can't get enough, the time off and everything, it's going to be a hard, kind of a hard deal to do it, but I can't imagine going to a national event versus if this over here pays $20,000 and the national event pays five. I, I can't see guys, but that kind of showed there like it, um, Bo and Jason's race there. I mean, I, I was like, I say, I was just flabbergasted. I, I thought there'd be a hundred guys that would stop after Gainesville, you know, on the way home and, and they just, they just didn't, And I was going, wow, I can't believe it that's that that was a lot of money
2: the mcr deal to me is almost like a working man's class like there's a lot of you know i'm 43 and i'm not the youngest one there but there's actually quite a few younger people building cars and coming into it because you can you know make it to the semis or the quarters you're still taking home 600 bucks a lot of these races well you know you do that two weekends in a row it's two years ago you know i brought home over ten thousand dollars never won a race So at least that really helps fill in the expenses and
0: makes it somewhat affordable. Absolutely. I I think that's, that's what will bring people in, you know, and and the entry fee being fairly reasonable. I mean, versus anything else Uh, that's uh, and I think that's really good to start paying in the earlier rounds because, because like you say, you don't have to win the whole thing to at least get, your entry or your entry and some gas money back or something.
2: So maybe what we do is we do the MCR format and then you do three big money races. So that's almost like the old national events. So there's three of these $20,000 to win races. It's like,
0: yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, a guy, and you don't have to have, eight grade points <laughs> to get into the races and you can pay when you roll up to the gate. I mean, there's all kinds of things like that, that I think, uh, uh NHRAs, they're going to drive a certain amount of people away with this, you know, the deal of all the online stuff you have to do. And just like the, the online tech card and that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I kind of go against a lot of people. I don't think there's a lot of cheating going on out there i think guys take pride in their car being legal and having a chance to win and stuff but uh this no tech deal i don't know if you you guys noticed it i, and I can't tell you what year it happened but i think it was after wally died but on nhra's stickers that they give you the little nhra sticker it used to say on they're dedicated to safety and it ain't on there no more. And I think that comes from the people that don't even know what drag racing is are in charge and they could care less that this started to get people off the street and on the track. I don't think they even relate to that anymore.
2: You know, it's almost like class racing was just, uh, really wrenching in your car and trying to make it better. and. You know, like basically trying to beat the, beat the other guy, trying to outwork the other guy.
0: Yeah. That's what I did all through the seventies. I, that's uh, that's, that's the only reason I won as much as I did in the seventies is because I was, I spent every waking hour that I wasn't sleeping or on the job. I spent it in the garage. Uh, that's, that's all I did up until, up until probably mid eighties.
2: <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's, uh it's interesting to see where it's going to go, you know, with the quotas and all that stuff, but it's almost like, you know, there's just not the call cult, cult, culture out there. Like we, you guys had, you know,
0: no, 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 not by a long shot. It's uh, it's, it's really, uh, it, it, it's really kind of sad for me because it, uh, it was so neat uh, you know, just like, just like the new cars you know every year when they come out you would go there you could spy you can know, you could spot a car a block away and say okay that's a Plymouth or that's a ford or you know or whatever nowadays you can't tell what's what and i you know the kids they'll never know that the, the younger generation will just never know what we grew up with
2: i went to the minneapolis car show when they do like oh man what was that that was probably back in 2011, they had a big car show where all the new models came into the cities there. I went with my dad. We just walked around, looked at cars all day. It was like the coolest thing ever. I don't even think they do that stuff anymore.
0: Yeah, no, they don't. You know, and it's really sad that, you know, that they don't get to do that. But, uh, but it's, uh, it's just a different world all the way around than it was. I, I thank God every day that I was born when I was born and, and got to go through the whole culture of that.
1: It, it isn't like, the new car show pretty much just a show off of the new computers that run these cars nowadays. Right. I mean, but hey, look what this one can do. It can read your text message to you. It can play your favorite list. It can, you know, heck, it can self-drive in a Tesla sometimes. <laughs> yeah. It just feels like it's yeah. become more of a technology product than a uh, a muscle head product. Like, like yeah, we don't have the exactly. We don't have the wrench anymore, I don't think. Right. Right.
0: Yeah.
2: Well, one of my all-time favorite movies is the. Uh, it's about the Ford GT where they developed that for the racing program. You know. Yeah. And the and then where he comes flying in there at the plane because they're debuting the '65 Mustang, and the guy tells him it's ugly. Like you know, that's the fanfare.
0: Right. Right. That was that was cool. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, that was really good. And uh, yeah, getting to live through the years of that lot of that stuff going on you know I was I was always pretty much my head was always in drag racing but I did know of the other things you know the big the big stuff that was going on around the world with cars and uh, and uh, yeah it, uh, it, it this technology nowadays like I say it's uh, it's really it's, I guess it's, it's neat in a lot of ways, but being a guy that wasn't raised around it, I, I, I don't, I don't really understand it and don't really want to,
2: (laughs) what's the most memorable race you've ever been at? Uh,
0: well, probably the most men are memorable, but, uh, probably the most devastating one was the. Denver national event in 1981, when I won it and got, got bounced, uh, after I won it, uh, for a lot of reasons, because back then you had to dial your car in the first day of the race, you had to go up the tower and give them your, your dial in on, on Friday. And you had to live with that dial in till the end of the race. And And
2: you're in, and you're in Brainerd where nothing runs right anyways.
0: Well, in Denver, yeah. Or in Denver, you can, the weather can change a half second up there just from what we had to dial in at three 30 Friday afternoon when it was like 95, 98 degrees and just, I mean, it was just devastating. So then Saturday evening comes around and we start gaining tents and uh my last four runs in the eliminator i was going down there just to a spot on the track and just hammering the brakes i mean sliding the car and it was night so they couldn't see there was no lights and there was one run i went through the lights burnt near sideways and uh, i uh, uh, it was you know and i was so excited or animated or whatever you can say at that, you know, adrenaline was up so high during that race. And, uh, then, uh, then when I won it, uh, I mean, it was probably the best driving job I did in my whole life, but it was a lot of it was pure luck. But, uh, then, uh, then to get tore down and, uh, got bounced through a technical deal, which was more political when it was wrong or anything. But, uh, that, that was probably my most memorable race, but, uh, but then when I won the 83 world's finals, that was, that was pretty exciting. But, uh, but it wasn't like the first one, but I think probably, uh, after that, probably the most excited I ever was when Marianne won Brainerd the first time, uh, that was. That was a big deal for us. And then when she won the All Star race and won Brainerd in '95, that was uh, she was all through the three or four years there in the '90s. Way, it was uh, it was really pretty, pretty, pretty fun. I guess you'd say. <laughs> Plus we were getting paid back a little bit financially to to help us.
2: Yeah, Brainerd was the only. I went to my first national event this year there, and that basically it's our home track here. And I just I really like that place. It's 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 neat. I don't know what to expect at any other ones, but I'm gonna have to go check it out.
0: Yeah, yeah. It Brainerd's a it's a pretty neat place. I mean, we would start going there in the in the mid '80s, I think, or the late '80s, and uh, boy. it kicked our ass for a lot of years. I mean, that place was slow and, you know, the weather would change on us. And we had the 283 cars and they they were pretty susceptible to chain weather changes. And, uh, and so we were, when we finally, finally got the first win there and, and then she, she wanted appeared in the final three years in a row. We couldn't believe it because we felt like that place had just, just beat the heck out of us for a lot of years. But, uh, but it's, uh, yeah, you know, it was pretty neat place. Like when we first started going there, it was, you know, it was, it was a nice facility basically, but, uh, but yeah, these, uh, it's these tracks though, you know, the nowadays with the tow rigs and stuff, you know, they have to be, they have to have so much pit area that it's really crazy versus the old days.
2: Yeah. Was the zoo going when she won or when did the zoo come into Brainerd?
0: Uh, The zoo came in, in the eighties. Cause I remember uh, me and W.A. Lee, we were really good friends and he came there in the eighties one year. And that was the first time I'd went over to the zoo at night and he, uh, he had a golf cart and we went over through there. And I remember I was, I was astonished because that's when it was really starting to get wild over there. And, uh, it, uh, it really, uh, up to something there.
2: <laughs> so you didn't take the kids with when
0: you went to Brainerd though? <laughs> no, I don't think we did, <laughs> but, uh, Cause most of the time we'd go, well, several times we'd go to Brainerd, why then we'd go on to Indy cause it was like the week after. So, and, uh, so yeah, yeah. Brainerd was, it's quite a place.
2: <laughs> What's your favorite racetrack?
0: Um, I'd have to say probably from, um, the track itself standpoint, I'd have to say probably Las Vegas, uh, the facility, uh, when it was first opened, I mean, it was, uh, it was really nice. Uh, the most, <clears throat> the one that I remember though, that was so far ahead of its time was Ontario when they opened it for the super nationals in 1970, <clears throat> they, uh, they had the, uh, uh, the straight stretch was a drag strip on the circle track and but it was uh, it was a first kind of state of the art type track you know where they had paved the, the paved pit areas and everything like that. It was It was just kind of a little bit ahead of its time, but like Las Vegas, it was uh, uh, they just the first year they had the race there, I don't remember when it was too early 2000 uh, I remember. I mean, we rolled in there, and they—they they didn't say they were going to have the race till about a week before because they weren't sure they was going to get the track done. And everybody kept saying they weren't going to get it done. And then they, probably two or three weeks before, they, or they said, "Oh, you know, it's going to be done." When <clears throat> we rolled in there, I mean, it the the pit area was just spacious and and paved and and everything, and they opened it up. On the Wednesday before it was free testing tune for all sportsmen. And uh I think I made like six runs that uh, that first day there and the track was just I mean, it was just superb. And uh then uh <clears throat> I remember late in the afternoon we were all sitting around in a pit area and Bruton Smith walked up. He was going through the pits and asking everybody what they thought of the facility, and uh, I'll never forget him walking up. I mean, he was what he was wearing and his his whole attire. I'd say probably was as much as my operate my whole racing operation. I mean, but he was a he was he was a pretty cool guy. You know, he came out and he really wanted to know what you thought of it and everything. And I thought I like I told him I says, man, it it's about as good as it gets.
2: <clears throat> I kind of felt that way when I went to St. Louis for Bohannon's race, like where's the dirt? Where's the mud?
0: <laughs> yeah. Go for the national event. <laughs> then you'll find out. <laughs> yeah.
2: I see that. I see they're putting a bunch of money into that place. They're getting ready for a NASCAR race there. So there's supposed to be all kinds of upgrades coming to that area. So oh, is there? Yeah.
0: yeah 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 it's a, it's a pretty neat facility i mean really it's it's kind of it's kind of late like you know it's a lot like las vegas it's kind of patterned the same way but uh but yeah that's uh you know that's a nice facility and uh there's there's a few of them around but unfortunately they're getting less and less
2: well there's only one that sells ice cream by the pound that's the one i need to make it to
0: yeah i i've never been to norwalk either that's one of the few tracks i haven't been to but uh, i always wanted to but it just never never worked out but uh, i uh <coughs> uh bill New, who owned boise he was really good for him and new uh uh baiters, uh the Bader dad and bill New, they were like one of the best friends and they kept in touch with each other on there, they were both track promoters and stuff. And, uh, and, uh, that, uh, I kind of knew of the baiters and then when they, of course, and they built Norwalk boy, uh, that, that was quite a, quite a facility. Plus I think they, it's like Boise, Boise and Woodburn are our two tracks that are both family managed and family owned and they run them like a business, you know, and consequently they make money and they, they treat people like they should be treated and, uh, they, it shows they get crowds there actually for the points meets and stuff. And, uh, then I think, uh, Norwalk has always been in that same category. You know, they're, they're good managers because that, uh, you know, that's probably how. I don't know Bader's, their background, but I, I, I know news and, you know, the news and the Livingston family and now Severance, uh, that's, that's their living. <laughs> I mean, if they don't, uh, they don't make money, they don't, uh, they don't, they don't have a very good life. But I know like Boise, there's four, four or five, at least four or five families of the kids and that's basically their only income is that track but they run it uh, they make money there
2: <clears throat> yeah it's uh bader definitely sets the bar pretty high there if more people had that mentality for ran, running tracks we'd have a lot of really nice places to go
0: oh yeah 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 <clears throat> yeah. I just, uh, you know, unfortunately in today's world, I don't see how anybody could ever put the amount of money that it takes to build a facility, you know, from scratch, your payback would be so long that, uh, even if it was run, right, it wouldn't, uh, <clears throat> it wouldn't be able to pay for it or justify the expense, uh, for very, very long. It's, uh, kind of a, Sad situation there it's getting it's getting like technology everything's getting priced out of the out of the ballpark
2: <clears throat> so another question we like to ask everybody is what's one rule you'd like to see changed?
0: oh boy <clears throat> i uh, <clears throat> that's a tough one <laughs> i uh, I don't really know on that, the, you know, the only that's thing that's a very, I,
2: that's a very political answer. You don't have it. Yeah. They're all good. We're okay with them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't say I'm all good with them, but I don't know, you know, when you change something, sometimes it's not always for the better. <laughs> the, the the only thing that I would like to see him do is, and I've talked to him several times and hit a brick wall is, you know, they need to do something with the racers that don't come to the staging lanes, <laughs> you know, they, if, uh, you know, I think like I told him, you got a computer and you invert the field every round that's problem solved. You know, first car down this time is the last car down last time. And, uh, uh, they just, uh, they just don't want to do it.
2: And- that's like my biggest pet peeve. I can't imagine somebody else doesn't like that. Like, You kind of surprised me with that one. I thought, I never thought you would have been on that side of it. I always say, let's put a shot clock at the staging lanes.
0: When the first car in your category goes down the track, staging lanes are closed. Yeah. Yeah, That's that's another one. I, you know, I'm not so sure they didn't have that at one time, but uh, I can't remember for sure. But, you know, why not really? I mean,
2: at least the first three rounds.
0: Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, uh I don't know, <laughs> but that's, uh, and with the information age nowadays, you know, that going last is an advantage. If you've got four or five guys with cell phones around on your crew, why you have an advantage. I guess another, one of the rules I would like to not have in stock, especially is radios. I don't believe that, you know, you should have radios where you have communication, but that's just kind of my opinion of it.
2: Cool. Well, what's your, what's your year look like? Do You got anything on the schedule yet or what are your plans?
0: Um, well, we're going to go to Pomona and, uh, uh Phoenix because they're back to back and then Phoenix has a double points race the weekend after the national. And, uh, we'll hit those, but Johnny is going to drive the car, probably both cars. If we can get him into super stock, why he'll drive both cars at Phoenix and the winter nationals for the national event. And then we'll, uh, I'll probably have to drive, or maybe one of the, maybe the gal girl can try to come down drive the points race with one of them. I don't know our boy. He said he has trouble getting off work. So, but he usually drives a super stock car, but, uh, he has, has to get the job first.
2: <clears throat> yeah. Work before play. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If he could uh, get off more way, uh, you know, we might think of coming back to Tyler's race again, but, uh, I just don't think I'm up for that. And, and yes, uh, he could go too. Well,
2: Johnny should be able to haul a car there. You should be able to drive one of his, right? Get in the old oh, Nova. I, I, th-
0: I think he's told me that, but I—I I tell totally, I, I, i i realize <laughs> it's like Clint Eastwood said: man's got to know his limitations." <laughs> <laughs> and I know mine now. I'm—I don't consider myself ever being that great of a driver, but I know now I'm not—not not as good as I was when I was 25. <laughs>
2: Yeah. Well, that's, that's awesome. I've, I've appreciated the time you've come on today and it was uh, very informative. So I appreciate giving us the time today and it was great to get to know a little bit more about
0: you. Yeah. Well, thank you guys. I appreciate it.
2: Go ahead, Craig.
1: Awesome. Thanks Cal. Appreciate your, your insights uh, and your stories. Cause it's always fun to hear history of the sport. Um, classracingtoday.com is the website classracingtoday at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments you can send a note there also remember you can help support the show classracingtoday.com click on the donate option you get to choose the value that you get out of the show and send it our way thanks a lot have a wonderful day everyone we will see you uh, on the next one it is still brand new into 2022 we're going to keep uh, keep rolling on thanks a lot have a great day We'll see you guys later. Have a good one. Bye. Keep up the good work, Kevin.